Welcome to Wilderness Podcast, a passion project about wilderness and wild places, with your host, Adam Bronstein. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Wilderness Podcast and the continuation of our Wilderness 30 by 30 miniseries. If you're listening by web browser, please close out of that, pick up your smartphone, go to your favorite podcasting app, search on Wilderness Podcasts, look for the green logo with the bear. There you can subscribe to be notified of new releases. You can go back and check out past episodes, and you can continue where you left off on this one. And as always, a reminder to my listeners that any views expressed on this program by me are mine and mine alone, and do not necessarily reflect views of any other organization that I am affiliated with. In this episode, I interview Michael Kellett, Executive Director with Restore the North Woods, a nonprofit environmental group in Maine, and they're looking to create a new national park near Mount Katahdin. Uh, They have successfully cobbled together a national monument up there with the help of Roxanne Quinby of Burt's Bees, and they've taken a hiatus from that effort during the Trump years, but they're going to ramp that up again now. Um, But the main thrust of this conversation is around Uh, Michael's proposal to create hundreds of new national parks across the country. There were a couple times during the conversation that I wish I had jumped in and interjected a bit on some statements that Michael had made. He says that wilderness areas need to be 5,000 acres or larger, and that also that they need to be in a relatively pristine condition. For these reasons, uh, that's why we can't um, look at some of these Uh, areas across the West and consider them as wilderness that we have to be looking at uh, new national parks. There's actually no minimum size requirement for uh, a wilderness area. The uh, 5,000 acre minimum came out of administrative rules under the Forest Service when they were looking at roadless areas and uh, looking at the best candidates for wilderness. And of course, the larger the area and the uh, more intact it is ecologically, the higher the value and target of that land would be to come under the wilderness designation. The Pelican Island Wilderness is off of the east coast of the U.S. I believe it's in Florida. I have to double check. But it's around five acres in size. So here we have this little tiny island, which is in our national wilderness preservation system. And also the idea that lands need to be pristine in order for them to qualify. There's nowhere in the Wilderness Act that would preclude an area uh, based on its condition. Again, the Wilderness Act was passed to be able to protect areas that were in relatively good shape, but that doesn't mean that we can't use it for lands that are somewhat degraded. In fact, we have plenty of examples where um, some areas have seen some logging or some past road building, and we've gone in and decommissioned the roads, uh, set up the area for a recovery. So I just wanted to get those two points out there. You know, national parks aren't the only option here when we're looking at at protecting areas that have some disturbance. You know, one other thing with the national park system is the National Park Service Organic Act of 1916 set up this dual mandate for the Park Service, and it's a little contradictory. They basically say that the park has to conserve its resources while providing for their use and enjoyment. And of course, there's always some conflict there, you know, especially when you have uh, large, large numbers of folks showing up. You know, the national parks were actually supposed to put together uh, management plans and how they were going to regulate visitors. 
And we haven't seen many of these plans completed. I think only one or two parks actually has. Uh, we're not seeing any any limitations to visitors. Um, cars overflowing in Yellowstone. People can't find parking spots. So, you know, unless we have a wilderness overlay in uh, some of the backcountry areas like uh, in Yellowstone, there's always the threat that the Park Service could um, fall back on, on the mandate and say that, hey, we have to provide the use and enjoyment of these areas. We have to uh, open it up, and we're already so crowded here, so we have to expand. Let's build another loop road. And then, of course, all the infrastructure follows, and then it impacts the wildlife. So let's, uh, let's think on that and uh, debate it. Okay, I just wanted to get uh, those points out there as we're continuing the debate about uh, where the wilderness designation is appropriate and where it's not. And um, I think that it has quite a bit of uh, applicability here when we're looking at rewilding landscapes, right? We don't need that quote-unquote pristine condition in order to, uh, to be rewilding using wilderness. I think that the wilderness designation uh, really makes sense here uh, in quite a few places. So Michael and I talk about his early years, his time spent working for the Wilderness Society on the East Coast, the founding and vision of Restore the Northwoods, the story about the creation of the first national monument in Maine, the history and culture of New England landscapes and its working forests, i.e. logging, a vision for hundreds of new national parks across the country, how new national parks and wilderness areas fit within the 30 by 30 campaign. Well, I hope you enjoy this episode. And thanks for tuning in. We might have one more release of the 30 by 30 miniseries, but we're just about ready to wrap it up. All right. Well, thanks for tuning in. All right. Michael Kellett, thanks for joining me on the program today. I appreciate your time this evening. Oh, glad to be here. So tell me a bit about yourself. I actually don't know much about your background. Well, I uh, started out as a, as a kid where my dad took us kids out to parks to hike and identify birds and enjoy the outdoors. Uh, I, li- I w- was born and raised in Detroit, Michigan, which is not very wild, but there actually are some parks out in the outskirts, so we would go to those. And then when I got a little older, we went to national parks, including places like Rocky Mountain National Park and Zion and Canyonlands and so forth, um, Grand Canyon. And um, and also parks in the east. So I got I had a real love of national parks and wildlands at a pretty early age. And then I realized that there really weren't very many in the east, very many national parks or wilderness areas, and a lot of places in the west that potentially could be that weren't protected. And for some reason, that seemed like a something that somebody needed to do something about. And um, I sort of got gradually involved as a volunteer and then working for uh, the Wilderness Society for a number of years in in uh, Michigan and New England, protecting wilderness and wild lands and so forth. And then I ended up uh, leaving the Wilderness Society and helping to start a new organization, Restore the North Woods. And the whole goal of Restore the North Woods was to, to go further than the mainstream conservation groups were willing to go in terms of uh, protecting wild lands and, and thinking big and having visionary goals and so forth. And that's what we've done ever since. That was in 1992. 
What did you do with the Wilderness Society? I know you said you were in the Midwest, but what sort of, uh, you were working on wilderness designation there? Uh, yeah, I, I worked, it was only about a year. I worked as a volunteer with Sierra Club before that in Michigan. Yeah, I worked on the Michigan Wilderness Bill, Wilderness Act, which designated about 90,000 acres of wilderness in Michigan, which is just about all the roadless area, national forest roadless area in Michigan. And I, w- I worked on um, also on national forest plans, reading these national forest plans. This is my, in the 1980s, late 80s. And so this is the first round of national forest plans. And I'm reading these plans and I'm going, I can't believe how horrible these plans are. I can't believe these guys are writing this stuff seriously and saying that logging is good for wildlife and we need, you know, we need to cut clear cut more stuff for more aspen and just it was just horrendous and so i helped to to write appeals of these plans and helped to we threatened to sue on a couple of them and we actually got the forest service to give us more semi-primitive areas which are areas that are relatively undeveloped and untrashed and interestingly one of the things we wanted and we got was a was wolf areas in the upper peninsula of Michigan where there would be very low road densities and not much logging. And, um, and at the time they said, Oh, what are you crazy? There aren't any wolves in Michigan, which was true in the late eighties. And guess what? We protected these areas and, and, you know, about a decade later, wolves started to come in from Canada and from Wisconsin. And now there are quite a few wolves in Michigan. And now these idiots want to open a hunting season for wolves. So now if, if these, these areas were, na- were a national park instead of a national forest, they would be protected. But in a national forest, they're not protected from trophy hunting and stuff. So even though the, there are wilderness areas, it doesn't protect wolves from the stupid trophy hunting. And then um, so after that, they, the, the grant I was under ran out. So they, the Wilderness Society offered me a job in Boston uh, to, to be the regional director in Boston. And interestingly, nobody, none of the really experienced people at the Wilderness Society wanted to work in Boston because they said, oh, there's no wilderness in New England and all the actions out west and Yellowstone and Yosemite and, and you know, the, all these exciting areas. And what, it, you know, we don't want to bother with New England. There's, it's boring. So first thing I get here and I'm talking to these people and they're saying, oh, yeah, there are millions of acres in northern Maine that are owned by these big timber companies and there's nobody living there and they've been worked over. They've been logged, but you could create a big national park or preserve up there and it would be, it'd be incredible. And nobody's talking about that. Somebody really ought to be arguing for big time protection and restoration and rewilding. We could have wolves, we could have all kinds of stuff. So I, you know, I said, Oh, that sounds good. So I talked to the wilderness society and at first they thought it sounded okay but actually over time um they got more and more cold feet they they were hearing from rich donors who were chummy with the forest industry in maine and they didn't want to rock the boat so they were less and less inclined to go along with those kinds of things and so finally i just ended up leaving it was kind of a mutual decision because they clearly were not didn't want to go the visionary wilderness route which seems strange to me since it's the wilderness society and uh you know so i left and helped to start this small 
grassroots group. And, and since then, the Wilderness Society has gotten more and more into working forests and win-win with the forest industry and collaboratives and all kinds of stuff, which I think is just totally inconsistent with the, the original mission and purpose of the Wilderness Society. So I, I guess I left at the right time. I met a lot of great people there. Uh, that was still in the days when the board had people like Marty Murray and Stegner and George Marshall, Bob Marshall's brother. Terry Tempest Williams was on the board just in the last year or so. She came on. She didn't last back. very long. Terry didn't last no, long. Well, I think it was probably similar. <laughs> big, su- big surprise, thing. you know. <laughs> so, yeah, same yeah. stuff. So, but but I I really got to meet some of the real some of the original, the people who were really the Arnie Boley, uh, who really were true believers in wilderness. And, and um, when they passed on to the next phase of existence, the, the whole thing started gradually de- deteriorating when they got these newer board members who are basically rich people who I think really, you know, they wanted to do something good, but they really didn't understand wilderness and didn't, you know, and now they've got people on the board, like former forestry people from the Forest Service and whatever. And so, anyway, but I le- I really learned a lot. And and when I you know when I hear about what is not possible or whatever from these big groups, I I know there are a lot of good people still in these or in these big organizations. But when I hear that from these big groups, I know how what they're thinking is. It's basically we don't want to do things unless it's a pretty much a sure thing that we're going to win. And instead of saying, what do we need to do? What's really, what is our vision? What are we going to fight for? What do, let's, let's convince people to do it. We need to do this. But there's really not much of that left anymore in the, in the big national groups. Yeah, sometimes people ask me if this is a Wilderness Society podcast, and I say, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. Um, unfortunately, I, you know, I thought that they were doing all that good work um, until fairly recently, a couple of years ago, but you know, you, uh, you learn. And, um, I think people are, are starting to open their eyes more about it and we do need these big visions. Otherwise they don't get done. Um, so tell me about, right. uh, restore. When, when did that start again? You, you already said so, but please say it again. 1992. And, and, 1992. And, and who joined you in that effort? Well, uh, there was an activist, David Carl, who I had been working with, and he uh, had a business background, so he kindly offered to do the business side of things, which I didn't want anything to do with. He and I sort of started pulling it together, but we got, we got people I had been working with um, to join our board, like Brock Evans, who's for, you know the former, I mean, he's been working on wilderness forever, and I had met him along the way. There were a couple people who were activists, uh, Charles Fitzgerald, who is a, who's still around and still fighting for wilderness in Maine, and George Worthner ended up joining our board pretty early on. It may have been right at the beginning, actually. And so we had we basically started out with some really hardcore activists, and I, I just said, I don't want to do, I'm not interested in doing this if we're not going to go for what we really should do what we really need to do, not what we think is going to be politically feasible and realistic or whatever. And, and the, you know, so we basically made it clear that's what we, you know, we, if you didn't want that, then there's no use in joining our board. 
And so in 1994, we first proposed uh, uh, the Maine Woods National Park, 3.2 million acres in northern Maine. And we had a big discussion about that because some of the board members, they all thought it was a great idea, but they said, you know, people, there's this hostility toward national parks and public. I remember this is like during the, what, Clinton? No, this is, I guess, Bush the first, was it? No. Who was president then? Anyway, this is, this is after the Reagan era where we had really hostility toward public lands and wilderness. 92 was Clinton. 92 was Clinton, I believe. Yeah, yeah. So, but it was after Reagan, so we and after Bush, and so we. It was a long period of hostility, and um, people thought, well, maybe we should talk about, you know, national biological area or a national reserve area or whatever. And I said, you know, nobody knows what that means. What does that mean? Nothing. <laughs> Everybody knows what a national park is. Everybody loves national parks. But national parks have a more than a century record. They're not perfect, but we know that some of the wildest areas uh, in the United States are national parks. We can't go for wilderness because none of this is, it's not federal. And even if it were, this is not roadless, untrammeled wildland right now. If it were left alone and protected, it w- will be. And we went around and around. And finally, they said, you know, you're right. We should really, you know, it ought to be a national park. And so let's go for it. Maybe we'll get it. Maybe we won't. And so we, you know, this was after we had proposed re, uh, restoring the, the wolf to New England and had petitioned to get the Atlantic salmon listed as an endangered species. So we were already marked as being this radical, troublemaking bunch. And in Maine, we were, cons- were you know, Jim St. Pierre is our main guy. He's our main director. He's born, raised. In Maine, his parents, you know, his family came from timber in, you know, timber back. We're working for the paper companies. So yet he still is like, they still give him a ration of garbage about being a radical and whatever. So we realized early on, you just can't listen to this stupid reactionary stuff. You have to, you have to think about what is really needed in terms of ecosystems and ecology and biodiversity and wildlife. And that's what we should be shooting for. If we don't get it, we, you know, we won't get it. But you don't get it if you don't ask for it. And so here we proposed a 3.2 million acre national park. Well, we still don't have that. But in the meantime, uh, Roxanne Quimby, who was the uh, founder, co-founder of the Burt's Bees Company, who makes lip balm and all this stuff, she, she saw Jim St. Pierre do a uh, talking at, at a, country fair in Maine talking about our national park proposal. And she was apparently standing over there listening to him with this guy arguing about what a horrible idea it was. And then afterwards she comes up and she says to Jim, Oh, hi, I'm Roxanne Quimby. I I heard what you were saying. That sounds like a great idea that national park. I love national parks. Is there anything I can do to help? I have a little bit of money. Maybe I can help. And so it ends up that she said, well, I'm going to just start buying land within your, I see your map of your proposed park. I'm going to start buying land in your proposed park area. There's a lot of it for sale. These companies are selling land all over the place for pretty cheap. And, and someday, then maybe I can donate it to become a part of the park. And we said, sounds good to us. So she just started buying land, literally. And she ended up 
in the end, she ended up starting to focus on an area east of Baxter State Park, which is this 200,000 acre, more than 200,000 acres now, state park in the middle of northern Maine. And um, that was acquired by a former governor from the timber companies gradually, piece by piece. So we, you know, she ends up buying all this 87,500 acres next to Baxter Park. And then she said, oh, I want to donate this to become a national park, a little national park. You know, maybe it'll grow, maybe it won't, but uh, I'd like this to be a national park. And the National Park Service, uh, John Jarvis came out and to, they had a public meeting and there was, a, there, you know, there was analysis. And so the Park Service was, would have been thrilled to get the, that as a national park. But of course, we had backlash from right wing, same kind of people that are out west or these anti-public lands and right wing. We want everything to be logged and grazed and mined and so forth. We hate the government. There are, there are plenty of those people in northern Maine as well. I think most people in Maine are pretty reasonable. But, but of course, the loudest ones are these guys. And they raised a big stink and it scared the politicians. So they backed off and wouldn't introduce a bill to create a park. This is like uh, 2012. And as you probably know, you need, a, you need a federal bill passed by the Congress to create a national park. So she worked at it for several more years. She got support from other groups that hadn't supported us because they thought we were too radical. But then uh, President Obama got in, and she started talking to him, his people, and um, can. Finally, there was enough support and, and convinced President Obama that this was worthy. And she said, OK, I'm going to do the, the same kind of thing that was done with Muir Woods National Monument or actually Acadia, the original lands of Acadia National Park, which is a private individual bought land. It's Rockefeller. Donated right? it. Rockefeller did that with uh, Jackson Hole. You, the private person buys the land and then they flip, turn around and donate it to the federal government. Then it's federal. And then the secretary of the interior accepts it as a national monument and the president signs off on it. And that's, so that's what ended up happening. So uh, we have a, a national monument and because she wanted it, she wanted originally a national park and preserve a la the, the areas in Alaska and a couple areas in the lower 48. And that was because in Maine, it's just like, you know, it's just like Montana or Idaho. Hunting is a huge thing. You know, the problem was not hunting. It was logging and, and other, you know, potential development and stuff. So, but she's not a big hunting fan at Roxanne. So she said, well, why don't we do it? Why don't we have a compromise? Let's have half of it be like a national park and half of it be like a national preserve and people could hunt in one half and not hunt in another half. And she, you know, she basically got the reasonable hunting interests in Maine to go along with that. And so, th so this monument is split between a hunting area and a non-hunting area, which is unusual for a monument. Most monuments have no hunting, but it's actually worked out very well. And interestingly, all these opponents who whined and complained, the same old stupid arguments. The arguments are all the same everywhere. Oh, it's going to ruin the economy, jobs, it's going to lock it up, and it's going to, you know, they're going to take over our homes and big government and blah, blah. It's the same stuff you hear every place, all the same arguments. But when this area was 
by the time it was designated, the economy was really doing badly in northern Maine. So the, the local chamber of commerce said, hey, you know, maybe this is not such a bad idea. We could use a little diversification of our economy. And, you know, local business owners in Millinocket, which is the biggest town up there, which is not very big, said, yeah, what, you know, this isn't that big an area. What, what, what's the problem with creating this area? It's going to help our economy or whatever. And the politicians were hearing all this positive stuff. And they ended up, the main politicians, other than the governor, who's a super right-wing idiot, who's super, he, he, he Paul LePage, who calls himself Trump before Trump, which is pretty true. He was the governor and he was, he was fighting it and fighting it. But in the end, Obama did it anyway. And when he created this monument, it was almost like immediately the opposition just disappeared. All these whining guys who, oh, it's horrible, blah, blah, blah. Everything's going to be a disaster. Of course, that didn't happen. And good things happened. The property values have gone up in these towns. So there's no opposition anymore to this monument. It's basically like people are going, wow, that actually was a pretty good thing. And uh, this is the case with national parks all around the country. Every, almost every national park had the same story. You know, uh, Grand Canyon was vehemently opposed by local people and the mining industry and the grazing industry, and they wanted to build dams, and it was going to be a disaster. Well, of course, now, what is Arizona called? The Grand Canyon State. You can take that park away from, from Arizona if you tried. And, of course, in, in Utah, where you've got very conservative political situation, you know, they've got the, the mighty five national parks there. And when they did the government shutdown a few years ago, it, these parks are so important for the local economies that the legislature of Utah, this very conservative Republican legislature, voted to pay to pay the cost to keep the parks open and they did and uh, they they thought they'd get their money back from the federal government i don't know if they ever got any money back but they said hey you know it's worth it well uh so this is again why you just can't listen to these naysayers they don't know what they're talking about they don't care they're just reactionaries they don't they don't have any vision they don't have any plan they don't, it's fear they, fear and change you know, fear, fear of change yeah and fear of change and and most people, you know, they they hear that and it worries them. But they're, they're, it's not that they're unreasonable; they're just misled in the early days. So you, you can't give up on the average person. You just have to keep plugging away until they finally get the truth, and then most people come around and, and are reasonable. That's what I've found. So that's so, why I, I'm very optimistic about the future of all of this because I really think most people will support reasonable things if you can get the facts through to them. So the Katahdin Woods and Waters National Monument, right? That's what it's called. Mm -hmm. So right. it's about 88,000 acres, 87,500 acres mm -hmm. or so. Yeah, yeah. So you've got, a, you've got a seed planted there just to the east of Mount Katahdin. What what other right. um, what other interest are you drumming up right now? Any anything anything happening? Well, in Maine, we sort of backed off while the, all this stuff was going on because there was you know the monument proposal, and then there was backlash, and it was there was that that monument was on the list that Trump had where he downsized you know the two monuments in Utah, and there was talk about him doing something with this monument. So there was there was big concern up in the early days uh, about the, whether it would survive. So that was not a good time for us to 
push to expand it, and now we're talking about, you know, it still leaves. It's within our proposed national park, so that's great. And it's well worth, it's a total wor- totally worthy area in and of itself. And actually, it's right butts up against Baxter Park. So actually, if you put that together with Baxter State Park, you've got an area, it's larger than Rocky Mountain National Park or Mount Rainier National Park. Or, you know, I mean, you talk, and, and the state park is, is a wilderness state park. So almost the whole thing is roadless. There's no logging except for one little area in the far. Right. It's got a forever wild, forever wild yeah, clause there. there. Yeah. yeah. So this is a huge core wildland. And so, uh, but there are a lot of areas in the main woods left that really aren't, that are uh, vulnerable. And it's, it's mostly, you know, it's like Oregon, the private timberland, these corporate timberlands in Oregon, there's really not much protection. And so unless we expand on this area, they're, they're going to continue. They're going to, you know, they're talk, there's talk about biomass and biochar and pipelines. And, you know, it's luckily it's far away from urban development. So that's not a huge immediate threat, but there are lots of beautiful lakes. I can guarantee eventually they're all going to get developed if nothing is done to protect this area. So, so we're re-engaging on that. And then uh, we're also involved in protecting and uh, restoring wildlands elsewhere in New England, for example, because they're actually surprisingly the forest in New England after being, you know, this is the earliest place that got cut over and cleared in the United States. This is where it started, is New England, basically. It was all and farm fields, right? I mean, it was basically it was, cut yeah. back, and there was like 10% forest left at one point or something? Yeah. Yeah, in the, like the 1870s or so, there was yeah 10 to 20% forest, and the, and the rest was just cleared land. And it originally had been about 90% forested, full-growth forest. So... Now the forest has been coming back because um, of almost a century gradual shifting from agriculture to, uh, you know, the agriculture was abandoned. And, you know, now, and and just like other parts of the East, uh, a lot of the abandoned farms, the the people who uh, had the farms just just literally abandoned them and went west to Ohio or whatever, and they were taken by the state or the county or whatever entity, and they ended up being, becoming state forest lands, a lot of them. So, so uh, Massachusetts, for example, has about 450,000 acres of state forest and parkland that, that, that was originally all private. Um, and then another 100,000 acres or so of these wildlife management areas, which same thing. And um, so we we have two bills that we got intro- we wrote and helped to write and got introduced in the legislature that would designate all of the state forests and parks as re- reserves that are off limits to all logging and all development, other than parks could have you know like national park type picnic grounds or whatever. But otherwise, it's they're going to be wild you know wildland restoration areas and then the wildlife management areas. It's more complicated because they claim they're, they need to manage these areas for wildlife, which is really bogus. But people have been proselytized about this idea that we've got to log for, to create more young forest because it's all disappearing. And we've got all these songbirds who are disappearing because of that, which is really 
really little or no evidence to support that, but it's a harder fight. So we said, all right, let's start with designating 30% of those areas as reserves that are off limits to logging. And then, um, and it could grow after that. But at the very least, you need to start with 30% as a la 30, 30 by 30. And I think what we, you know, what will happen is once people realize that there's really no good reason to log anything, we'll get support to expand on that. But so um, as far as I know, there's no other state where all the state forests and parks prohibit all logging and other resource extraction. I don't, I don't know of any state that has that. So if we get that, that would be huge. And the, and the two, two bills together would protect about 10% of Massachusetts with no logging, no development, no, no industrial development, no extraction. So, which is, you know, far from half earth, but for Massachusetts, one of the most densely, uh, I think it's like the third most densely populated state. That's not bad. Right. Everything's relative. Yeah. The uh, mm-hmm. Northeast Wilderness Trust does some good work out mm-hmm. there. Yeah. They're you know, working at the private level, level doing sorts of things. So they're coming at it from, you know, taking private lands and buying those or protecting those. So the, the two are very complementary. But so many of the land trusts out there and, you know, forestry organizations, conservation groups are still very much in, involved in logging. And I'm sure that has a lot to do with the uh, conservation easements and the subsidies and and all that. So, you know, maybe that's something to address with uh, 30 by 30. I know Biden private land and, you know, offering different incentives to uh, mm-hmm. to private folks. So right. that, that would well, be huge on the East of- Coast. Yeah, a lot of the problem is uh, relevant to what I said before, is that it's an ideological, cultural thing. It's the people, you know, in the West, as imperfect as it is in terms of having, you know, there still are a lot of groups that don't stand up for big wilderness and stuff. But uh, even the wimpier groups agree that they're, that wilderness is a legitimate thing and that there should be some wilderness and that everything shouldn't be a logged working forest or whatever. Well, here, there are a lot of the mainstream groups who basically don't believe that wilderness is, they don't, they say, oh, I love, oh yeah, I love Yellowstone. Oh, the Arctic Refuge. Oh, we got to prevent drilling in the Arctic Refuge. Oh yes, I went out west and had a wonderful vacation, beautiful wilderness. Then they come home and they won't support anything being wild. And it's because it's a cultural thing. They really believe that, 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 People in New England just don't, they want the working forest. They love logging and they, they don't think things could be, should be locked up. And you have these hardy loggers with the plaid shirts and the local economy. And, and it's, it's really a fantasy thing. It's not based on any reality. And the, you know, the real reality is that these timber, these, you know, speculators buy up the land and then they carve it up and, develop it and buy biomass it or whatever that's the reality so but uh, you know well-meaning uh conservationists in new england it's the standard thing is they really they really believe that you just you know people want and it and we we do it differently we do sustainable forestry which there's no such thing as sustainable forestry there's no definition of that there's no scientific definition of sustainable forestry. It's just a buzzword. So a lot of it is educating our own colleagues. And they're, you know, they, they're well-meaning, as I say. They really 
they're trying to do the right thing, but I think they've been limit living in a very limited perspective. I mean, I've spent a lot of time paying attention to the West. I've done work, you know, with Glen Canyon Institute in Utah and, and have seen, the, you know, the public land issues out there. My parents lived in Colorado, so I've been out there dozens and dozens of times, visited all these parks. So, to, you know, to me, I can, I can see the pros and cons of both. But most of these people don't know anything about what's going on in the rest of the country in terms of wilderness and public land. So they don't really have that perspective. Oh, there's a great book. It's called Wilderness Comes Home. I forgot who wrote it. I have it in my bookshelf somewhere. But it's about the vision of rewilding the Northeast and New England. It's very compelling. Mm-hmm. And, yep. you know, it's such a wet environment. Human disturbances quickly, you know, dissipated, I suppose, for lack of a better word. But... Um, you know, you go in, you find these old cellar holes and stone walls, but you definitely get, uh, a very wild experience in in new England if, if it's, uh, protected properly. So there really is a lot of potential out there. So I commend you guys for doing that, but let's turn our, let's turn our gaze towards the the whole country now thinking Mm -hmm. about 30 by 30 Mm -hmm. and you have a proposal for what over a hundred national parks. I want to talk about that and also juxtapose that Mm -hmm. with wilderness and where it may or may not be appropriate. Right. So go for it. We're starting with a hundred. Well, we're starting with the the top hundred and which is of course a uh, quality, you know, it's a subjective judgment, but what we did is we, I mean, I've been working on this for 15 20 years uh, on basically sort of compiling potential parks. Just but you haven't gone public really, yet, right? Right. Or you haven't There's, put out the right. maps and the descriptions yet? Not officially, no. Um, and it's because it's not that easy to, it's easy to, to theoretically talk about new parks. And we've got a list of about 500 theoretical park areas. But then to try to boil it down to a real, something real, um, is much harder, and especially since I have, you know, I don't know the whole country, um, but I've I've basically dived into these various areas and done deep research. Uh, I knew a lot of the there are a lot of areas I was familiar with, and other areas I had heard about, and then did some research, and it was obvious that these were part, you know, a lot of these, quite a few areas that have been studied for national park potential or proposed and they didn't happen for political reasons you know maybe a third of these areas fit that they're obvious Um, but then there are other areas that um, you really have to do some deep research and pretty soon it's obvious that this is an area that deserves to be a national park and either nobody thought of it or they didn't think it was possible so they didn't really go anywhere with it for example, there are quite a few areas, you know, the Nature Conservancy takes a lot of hits from, from you know, hardcore conservationists for good reason. They, a lot of the things they're doing, like supporting logging on their lands and whatever, which is I think is crazy, but they have some really great scientists and biologists out there who we never hear about much, and they, they're all over the place looking at areas, looking at p- possible rewilding and looking at areas that are have potential for that are private land that could you could build on that and create a much bigger protected area and i was surprised how many of those areas are out there that no one knows anything about maybe local you know local conservationists do and um 
and then you then you start looking at existing public lands, national forests and BLM lands. All other than wilderness, they're almost all completely and national monuments. Somewhat, they're all completely unprotected from bad stuff. So, it, but but the thing is, we decided, you know, it's easy to we could just easily come up with a hundred areas in the West. You could just take carve out areas on existing public lands all over in the West and you'll ask and you'd say, Yay, we got our hundred areas. You know, I I'm from Michigan, which is really poor in terms of having big protected areas, and the whole Midwest is, so is the southeast, so is the northeast, so and and certainly the Great Plains. So our thinking was, all right, we need to really we need a, an American an an American plan here for the whole country where we start thinking differently of national parks rather than this antiquated view of national parks being monumental giant mountains or giant caverns or giant canyons and spectacular this or that and that's it to realizing that this is our this is our national and international heritage here this is not way beyond scenery and hiking. This is biodiversity. This is climate change. If you start looking at, for example, forests that are, are carbon-dense forests, well, you, basically you've got two major nodes for that. Of course, the Pacific Northwest and Southeast Alaska are the most, but the Northeast, the New England is actually about the second most dense. You've got these forests in New England that have recovered uh, imagine what they were pre-settlement. They've recovered so much that they, they are huge folk, uh, areas of, of dense carbon sequestration. Some of the southeast is too, but of course they've been hacking like crazy, clear-cutting to send pellets over to Europe to burn them. So the southeast has been really hammered. There's some carbon-dense forests in the upper Great Lakes area too. And then, of course, you've got grasslands which are only beginning to, to be recognized, especially tall grass prairie, are really important uh, carbon sinks because they sequester so much carbon in the soil. And then, of course, there's wetlands, uh, which are generally not rec recognized. you got things like, like mangroves in tropical areas, which are only beginning to be re recognized. So, so carbon is totally, has been totally ignored in national park designation until now. Totally ignored. This, it's not even on the radar screen. Biodiversity has been sort of spottily addressed. And interestingly, you know, one of the earlier, one of the national parks, uh, uh, Everglades, which was designated, I think it was 1942, or and when it was designated, people said, "What? This is just this is a swamp with a bunch of skiers and alligators and." You know, it's just flat. Who wants to? Who wants that to be a park? That doesn't have any mountains. Doesn't have any canyons. And really, far-sighted people said, "Yeah, but it's the biodiversity that's the important thing here." Hello. And so that was really the first biodiversity national park. And now we've got some newer ones like Congaree in South Carolina and other places. But we barely are touching the surface in terms of biodiversity. The southern, the whole uh, Appalachians are super biodiverse. It's a biodiversity hotspot. You've got the Apalachicola in Florida. There are, there are also marine offshore areas like the Big Bend 
area of Florida, for example. There are these incredible offshore kelp beds and, and, and other places have coral reefs. And we've spent very little attention on those areas, too. And, and then, of course, the Pacific Northwest, with all these carbon-dense forests, there's, there are practically no national parks in the Pacific Northwest. There's wilderness, but really not very much compared with, say, the Rockies um, in terms of per acre, the amount of, or, or California. Basically, the timber industry is just, has just negated any real protection of a lot of these areas. Well, it's about time. You know, the whole Tongass National Forest, it should be a national park. Why on earth are we logging in the Tongass National Forest? It's nuts. It's crazy. So Yeah, I mean, um, that, that's, to allow, that's to allow the Native American tribes access to, you know, foraging and hunting. So, you well, know, up, hunting, up, up there. hunting is a different issue. But I'm talking about, you know, and, and, uh, you know, hunting for deer or whatever is one thing. Hunting for wolves is there's no excuse for anybody to be hunting predators. Um, I think in terms of, uh, you know, the, the Alaska parks, the existing Alaska national parks, they have subsistence allowances and whatever in the, in the law. And uh, that's perfectly legitimate where there really is legitimate subsistence use. So, so that's, that's, you can do that yeah. with the national park and preserve. So how would you Sorry. present a new national park to... To a tribe who's concerned about losing, you know, access to some of their uh, sacred areas and also their mm-hmm. sustenance way of life. So, how how would you approach that? Well, I think those are very legitimate things. So, uh, you know, I think that's the first thing is to acknowledge that those are totally legitimate concerns, as opposed to concerns about being able to drive ATVs wherever you want or logging for corporate profit or whatever, or mining or fracking. But for, for those kinds of things, I, you know, I think a good model of, uh, that was, at least, and I think will be again, is like Bears Ears National Monument, where there was really a discussion, there was a back and forth, and it sounds like there was a, they came to a mutual plan that, that, that provided for legitimate Native American access to sacred sites and so forth. I mean, yeah, they I, came up with that. They came up with that proposal, and they they arrived at a national monument. And I wonder why they went with a monument and not a national park. Do you know why? Well, I I know what I saw in terms of what people were saying, and it was based on. I don't know that the tribes felt that way, but the the Anglo people involved in this. I saw what they said. Oh, national park would prevent access. And it's, it'll become a Disneyland with thousands, zillions of people, and they're going to trample everything, and blah, 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 which is totally baseless. I mean, it's just ignorant. It's based on a lack of knowledge of what national parks are. Take a look at the Alaska National Parks. They, they're national parks and preserves. National Preserve can allow, basically, a national par- preserve is a national park with exceptions, and the exceptions are in in the law, and you can allow the Big Cypress National Preserve, for better or for worse, in Florida, allows oil and gas drilling, and it's because there were pre-existing drilling rights. But you know, so they allow they allowed it because that was something they had to allow. It allows hunting, it allows trapping, it allows airboats in some areas, which actually are used by Native Americans in some areas. 
Um, so it's really, it's just based on a lack of knowledge about national parks that people, and, well, plus politically, getting a national monument was a lot easier because the president could just do it. Whereas the chances of uh, getting the Congress to to designate Bears Ears as a national park was were right. That, that was zero at the time. That was probably most of it right there, right? Is that, you know, Obama could just but, but sign there, it. Yeah, but there but there was a lot of resistance. I mean, I, I, I followed it very closely. And, and a lot of people who should know better thought a national park was a bad idea all for all misinformed reasons. You know, they, these are well-meaning people. They wanted to protect the area, so I don't at all question their motives or their their you know and the national monument is pretty was pretty good i think it's going to get re you know re-established it'll be pretty good but the bureau of land management is not the right agency to do this they don't they don't have any expertise in historic preservation in recreation management in ecosystem protection and and so forth. They have some, you know, they have some good people in the agency, but the agency has no money for any of this. They don't have any historic uh, preservation uh, resources to any great extent. They're, they're, you know, they're not the right agency. And the same with the U.S. Forest Service, same thing. They shouldn't be, uh, we shouldn't be depending on them to, for preservation and restoration of, 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 ecosystems or for historic preservation and restoration they just don't have the expertise that's not part of their you know they have a multiple use mandate which is they have that and then they have fracking and orvs and mining and logging and grazing it's all just this big hodgepodge and and most of the blm national monuments still have grazing uh, livestock grazing and in fact grand staircase at scalante in the national monument you may be familiar they're they're talking they want to do major league chaining of of junipers to clear a bunch of a huge area thousands of acres for livestock forage so yeah yeah they'll um, always they'll always get in there if they can right just like they did at uh after the fires in california at uh, sequoia national monument they they did some some salvage logging in there. Um, yeah. So they'll, they'll always Which be able to get their hands in. Yeah. As long as it's BLM or Na- National Park Service. And again, they're not perfect. They've done some, a few things that I, I don't think are great. But for example, the Rim Fire, um, which burned a huge area of the Stanislaus National Forest, and, and which a lot of it was had been previously logged. So, so much for logging, preventing fi- wildfires, which is a joke. And then it, it slopped over into Yosemite National Park. And as soon as it got into Yosemite, it started slowing down and it ended up pooping out in Yosemite National Park because Yosemite, they had done some controlled burns there, but not very, not a whole lot, just in some localized areas, they'd done some burning. But overall, it's basically, it was just a natural forest. Yeah, it held moisture. <laughs> it's like you, you pick up a log off the forest floor, or, you know, and try to light it. It doesn't light that that easily. Right. Exactly. So, so it really, you know, it, it's to, it seems so simple, but the more we learn, the more we realize nature knows best, and we just should should do as little screwing around with nature as we can. And if we do, we're gonna that's gonna be a good way to go. 
And the more we, we mess around with nature, the more we're going to screw things up. Well, the, the industry knows that, right? I mean, they're, they're selling their bullshit and, um, you know, they have the money to, uh, send their propaganda, uh, everywhere and yeah. it's, it's hard right. to, to combat. Well, let's talk about recreation right. impacts a little bit because like even bear's mm-hmm. ears, once, once that, mm-hmm. that story broke, you know, not many people heard about the bear's ears before the mm-hmm. monument. And now all right. of a sudden you have like a 2000% increase or something, you know, the friends of Cedar yeah, Mesa had to, mm-hmm. I, I threw that number out there. It's, it, it's yeah. astronomical. The Friends of Cedar Mesa yeah, sure. had to build a, a special visitor center just to educate people. So mm-hmm. when we're establishing national parks across the country, it's going to, the, the amount of people coming to these areas are going to explode and it's good for the economy. Right. But when I think about the West that I really love, you know, I like going to these really remote places that have some wilderness mm-hmm. study areas and you just have that silence and that big open. And, and that's the, that's the West that I really love. And, and I'm kind of mm-hmm. uh, concerned about it. It's going away in a lot of places. Yep. Well, um, wilderness where an area qualifies as wilderness there, you, you can't beat that, um, in terms of what you're talking about. And I, I think every place that qualifies as wilderness, we should designate as soon as we can before it's trashed. Um, but the problem with wilderness is, as you know, it has to meet the standards of the Wilderness Act, and and it has to be roadless, and it has to be substantially not appearing to have been seriously impacted by humans any time recently, and it has to be, you know, generally has to be 5,000 acres or bigger. So what you end up with is, at best, you have these balkanized little blobs even in the most remote areas now in the West, you, you can't create giant new wilderness areas. All the big areas have been either designated or fragmented. So if we, even if we designated all the roadless areas left wilderness, which we should, it's still going to leave huge areas that are unprotected. So then what do you do? You got to do something because it's clearly the state of quo is not protecting those areas. And so I I think the best alternative for areas that where you can get a, a contiguous tracks and, and they're still in decent enough shape to be salvageable, which is really most block, most public lands in the West, you know, probably 90% cal- figure this way, potentially could be national park areas. And national park, the advantage of a national park is a national park can can, you can designate wilderness in a national park and in roadless areas, but you can connect these wilderness areas with national park lands that don't have to be pristine uh, wilderness. That all the eastern national parks were created from areas that had all been cut over. You know, Shenandoah National Park was a bunch of farms with woodlots when it was designated in the 1920s. And now there are, there's wilderness because the areas have grown back enough that they've designated wilderness areas. Now, Shenandoah National Park gets a huge number of people visiting, but there's no logging in Shenandoah National Park. There's no fracking. There's no pipelines. There's no, no urban development. There's no uh, second home development. So it's a trade-off. It's a trade-off. There's no, it's not really nirvana versus a national park. It's, it's national park versus other things. And what are the other, you know, other than wilderness, 
what is a what what is going to provide better protection than a national park? Nothing. There's nothing. And so then you say, okay, well, th- what are the downsides of national parks? Yes, you can have you bring more uh, visitors, no question. But the National Park Service is the best agency in the world in terms of crowd management, visitor control. You go to a national park, they shunt you to play to the lesser used places. They limit use and play. They have shuttle buses more and more. Uh, it's imperfect, but bears. The problem with bears is, is the, as I say, the BLM is not competent in crowd management or any of this stuff. They don't, you know, and it doesn't doesn't mean the people are terrible who work for the BLM, but they don't have the funding, they don't have the mandate, they don't have the expertise. So Bears Ears has basically got the worst of both worlds. You've got an agency that's not able to deal with all with more visitation, and then you've got more visitation happening. It, it, I mean, you got, for example, Yellowstone National Park, and people always talk about, you know, the downside of recreation in Yellowstone, and then certainly there are all kinds of reasons to for concern, but think about Yellowstone National Park is 2.2 million acres, and it's about 98% roadless, undeveloped. It's not designated wilderness. It should be, but it's de facto wilderness. What area on any national forest other than wilderness can you say that about? Or BLM land? No place. There's no place. 2.2 million acres? Take a block of national forest with 2.2 million acres and other than designated you know like the uh, river of no return wilderness or something so national parks you know yosemite everybody talks about yosemite valley it's crowded or whatever yes that's true but yosemite is like 89 percent wilderness where there's no roads no development sure there might be a lot of people on the trail but compare that to grazing logging fracking development pipelines wind power, solar, solar arrays. I, I, th- I don't think that's all that bad a trade-off because the trade-off is not between that and pristine my own little wilderness area because that doesn't exist anymore. As I've said before, maybe pe- a lot of visitors don't know about some of these remote areas. I can guarantee the, the oil and gas industry know where all of them are. They know every single place where there's potential for oil and gas timber industry i can guarantee they've done all kinds of satellite visualizations of where the last trees are they can log so those guys they just they're just waiting to get access to anything they can get and we saw that with bears ears these guys actively they knew exactly where they wanted to go and they lobbied the trump people who were perfectly happy to let them in and so as soon as they had an, uh, an opportunity they were right in there now luckily because it had been designated as a national monument, enough people knew about the area, despite the downsides of you know crowds and whatever, those people were defenders of the monument. So those people are the reason why we probably will not have fracking and mining for uranium and stuff in this area. So we have to think about the trade-offs. I think, um, and you, you never can let up, you've got to manage people but pe- people can be the biggest allies of protecting wild areas if they're pro- if they're educated, as you say. You've got to educate. People don't know any better a lot of times. There's no question. Um, but I'd, I'd certainly re- I'd rather trust some tourist from New York City 
who is stumbling along, doesn't know any better than some oil and gas industry guy who gets access to, to track in the area. I would, so it's, it's, it's all a big trade-off, but if we don't see people as our allies, we're, we're not people, regular people versus people with the you know, industry and others with a uh, selfish interest, we're lost because we're, we can't succeed. We can't lock these areas up and keep people out. We're going to have, we need to invite people in and make sure they, you know, they do what, you know, they, they do just what is needed to protect these areas, just like we would. And I think people, I think people will, if they're educated, we set the right tone. I mean, we had the wrong tone for so long from so many places. Um, but even even really conservative Trumpsters and whatever, a lot of those people are not, you know, they can be, a lot of them like to go out in remote areas and wildlands, and maybe they won't do exactly what we want. Some of them want to shoot wolves and <laughs> drive ATVs, and that's not good. But but a lot of people don't. Uh, you know, hunting is not the enemy if it's, if it's regulated, um, and we don't allow predators to be killed. And we have some, we need some areas without hunting because we know that wildlife acts differently where there is hunting and also heavy recreational use, same thing that wildlife acts differently. So we do need areas with very low human uh, access. And that, that's where you got these big remote wilderness areas. You can, you can do that if you do it right. Uh, one of, one of the areas on our list is to expand great basin national park to about 20 times, you know, like, three million acres or so, two and a half million, three million acres to take in a bunch of the national forest and BLM land around there. And there, what we're trying to do is pick, I don't like to use the term cherry pick, but that's sort of what it is where you can, you've got so much to work with. You, you know, if you know anything about public lands, which you obviously do, they're just vast areas of public land that are totally that are every bit as amazing as existing national parks. And even in the East, there are areas that, although they're way smaller to start with, they're incredibly biodiverse. They're beautiful. They've got incredible opportunities. They're near big cities and millions of people. Uh, so you really got to, there's a lot to work with. So, but, but I think if you start out with like everything, <laughs> It's that's pretty difficult to for people to get their heads around. But I think 100 areas that are like 250 million acres, the national park system would be 250 million acres. If we added to it, it would be three times the size of the current one with our proposal. That's that's a reasonable expansion. And that would raise the amount of public of uh, of uh, protected areas in the lower 48 then you'd be starting to approach, it wouldn't be 30, still wouldn't be 30%, but it would be, you know, about 20%, 18 to 20%. Whereas right now it's like the entire country, it's like 12%. So, so if we protect the rest of our roadless areas, that gets us, I don't know, right. five, 5%, something like that. Yeah, so, I, I have to yeah, add it up, but that would be huge. Yeah. 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 And it's not, it's not one size fits all. I certain, I mean, wilderness is great. All the roadless areas ought to be designated wilderness. But a lot of those areas also could be within a bigger national park. Um, for example, one of our proposals is to expand Rocky Mountain National Park down the entire front range, all the way from 
from the Medicine Bow Mountains and in, in, uh, where they want to clear cut and trash like hundreds, a couple hundred thousand acres in the Medicine Bow National Forest in Wyoming. We could incorporate that in a national park and then go right down the, the uh, front range to the Spanish Peaks. And most of that is public land already. Some of uh, most of it national forest. There's some BLM. Um, you got all kinds of roadless areas, dozens and dozens of roadless areas that haven't been designated. But between them is all this stuff that couldn't qualify as wilderness. You got millions of people living on the front range. You got Little Rocky Mountain National Park, which is jammed with people in the summer, um, which is amazing. But you could expand it hugely. I mean, that's another example. The you know the San Juan Mountains. And speaking of Colorado, why isn't that a national park? There's a, you could create a huge national park, taking in several of those national forests, um, and create a several million acre national park. There are just loads of those. You know the 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 um, you got the the uh, Whitefish Range west of Glacier National Park. That that area is really in threatened with all kinds of things that could be added to the park. Um, anyway, so it's, then it becomes sort of, and then you've got national, um, national grasslands, which are totally mismanaged by the forest service. Why on earth the U S forest service has grasslands makes no sense. Anyway, we're now recognizing the grasslands are, are, uh, are not quite as dense as, as, as forests in terms of, uh, carbon sequestration, but they, they store huge amounts of, of carbon in the soil. And yeah, it, but we also know that grazing grasslands ser- seriously reduces the amount of carbon sequestration. Duh. So why aren't, why don't we just designate a number, you know, Thunder Basin and, and uh, that the, you could create a national uh, grassland in the, in the area of the, with, uh, Comanche and Cimarron and a bunch of the, the Kiowa National Grasslands. You could have a short grass prairie national park in that, and that was the that area for where those states come together there, the Texas and, and Oklahoma and New Mexico and Colorado. That was the heart of the Dust Bowl right there. That was like the bullseye of the Dust Bowl. So. What better place to preserve so we don't have a, a, another dust bowl than these grasslands, which were became national grasslands because they were t- totally abandoned and destroyed by by ranching, by grazing and farming. But they would be really and and also these are these are areas where you could reintroduce, you know, you could protect prairie dogs, which are totally they're treated like wolves in terms of being treated as vermin and, dis- and killed and poison and then you could have black-footed ferrets you could have wolves you could have bison the northerly yeah i mean you there's so many possibilities once you stop but you've got to make the decision that this is going to be a protected area and we've been so i think we the time is done for this incremental little this little area this little area a little bit here you know maybe in 10 years we can do blah 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 we know now we've got you know a decade or two where we need dramatic action to protect huge areas of the planet. What are we doing in the U.S.? We got the 30 by 30, but how is that really going to look on the ground? We don't know. It's re- it's left as a very vague concept, which yeah. probably is good because politically it would be, you know, 
But I think it's up to us then to fill in, fill in the, the blank spots and to say, okay, if we're talking about 30 by 30, these are areas that ought to be a part of the 30%. These yeah. areas qualify. And we're talking about the real, we're, not, we're talking about gap one and gap two protection. We're not talking about working sustainable forestry or whatever. We're talking about real protection, wilderness, national parks, preserves, areas like that. Um, that are truly protected permanently by law, that's what we want. And here's, here's where they are, here's the map, and let's, you know, we can go way beyond this, but here's, here's the start. Here's the minimum we want. You're on the 30 by 30 miniseries, so that's what we're talking about, <laughs> is this, this big idea. Um, yeah. I don't, I don't think Joe Biden's listening, but, you know, maybe someone in the Interior well, Department can listen. <laughs> I think Joe Biden is. I I don't think he's got a got a uh, decisive feeling either way about this. I think he's. Uh, I think he really is open to whatever. I, he hasn't. This is not what he's been thinking about deeply. Um, but that doesn't mean he's not. You know, he's. Uh, uh, you know, if you follow the politics of the whole thing, which I do all the time, as a political science scientist, as that's what I started as is he's been really amazingly open to trying new things as a pro- he's a problem solver really is what he's he really is trying to do well this is a problem here's a solution and let's get it out there for people to, to look at and talk about i want if people don't think that we need to that tripling our national parks is a good idea what i want to know what their alternative way to get to 30 by 30 is because i haven't heard it and if not, are they saying we're just not going to even try? Because that's really the alternative. In New, in- in New England, you know, we've had uh, the opponents of our bill that would, that would designate only 10% or so of Massachusetts as basically 30 by 30 protection. Uh, you know, they don't have an alternative to get to 30 by 30. They have no alternative. They just, it's like the, it's like the Obamacare repeal and and replace. There's no replacement. That's basically what they want to do: repeal with no replace. I'm sorry, I don't accept. That's not acceptable. That's not acceptable. <laughs> well, I want to touch on one other thing. I'm always making a plug mm-hmm. for for quiet. Um, mm-hmm. If I had one hill to die on besides wilderness, it would be finding quiet places for ourselves yep. to be animals and for yep. the animals to be animals. So, yes. you know, national parks are some of the more quiet places, but when I'm in the backcountry of Yellowstone, a lot of times I hear those Harleys ripping up and down the, mm-hmm. the main roads through mm-hmm. the canyons and, mm-hmm. you know, the yep. ATVs and the side-by-sides and the dirt bikes and the loud trucks yep. all over our national right. forest lands the small engine right. aircraft, the helicopter tours. I could go on and on. I feel like I'm right. going crazy, and that's because I am going crazy. Um, <laughs> but we have to address our noise pollution problem in a big way, and yes. I think we can do that with uh, our national park system. We can install yeah. decibel meters as people come in. Um, sorry, you have to leave your Harley at home. But I think we also need to, um, you know, really think about our soundscapes with our, with um, some new national parks. Well, I totally agree with that, and the same with darkness. Dark skies are another thing that are disappearing. Same thing, and I think it, part of the advantage of expanding the national park system is all of a sudden, you know, so so say we expand, 
Yellowstone National Park to 6 million acres, which is what somewhere in there is what we're proposing to take in all these lands, all these public lands around it. Well, you know, you could start closing roads. You could start spreading people around. There are a lot of people, I'll bet, who would who feel the same way as you if they if they knew there was another place in a bigger net, Yellowstone National Park. Sure, they might go to Old Faithful and check it out, but then they might go to a remote area to get away, and all of a sudden you're reducing the the uh, density of of the people there. But that doesn't mean we don't need also regulations of of noise and so forth, which we do. Uh, I mean, the reality is in the longer run, and maybe not so long, uh, we're going to get rid of internal combustion engines. So fortunately, at least that will help to reduce the, the noise. But still, you, if you have any any motor vehicle of any sort, you're still going to have noise. So, or aircraft. Um, We've got to get the aircraft out of the air, skies over national to, parks. Yeah, we should, yeah, they should be banned over national parks. I mean, You know, it's just um, like one one or two people up in the sky and they're just right you know it's just noise right. pollution for miles and miles just from one aircraft right. just buzzing in a circle right. you know it makes no utilitarian sense to me right well it doesn't i we we visited the nepali coast in hawaii not a few years but a few oh. years ago which is one of the areas that ought to be a national park that area in Kauai, and um there a big thing now is helicopter tours offshore and they just zoom back and forth off the shore, over the ocean, offshore, and just zoom up and down the coast. It's super obnoxious. Uh, well, you know, one thing is if it's a national park, it gives you a lot more leverage to do something about it. And now uh, part of the problem is that nobody's really trying very hard to do anything. But, you know, the, when people, when they, when they, propose to do something really outrageous in national parks, you have a lot better chance of reining in abusive stuff with a national park because you can you can bring in people from all over the country. You know, people in New York City care about Yellowstone. If you start talking about, you know, slaughtering bison in Yellowstone, there are a lot of people from all over the country who get really happy. The problem is that nobody is really offering a solution to that. And so they just get people mad, and and then, you know, the real solution is to expand Yellowstone, and get all the cows off the expanded Yellowstone, and then then that gives us some time to work out a bigger plan as to how we're going to have bison over zillions of acres. But right now, you got so little to work with. I mean, Yellowstone's really a small area when you think about bison. If it were a national park and preserve, which is what it would be you would basically negotiate which areas would continue to allow hunting. And so hunting would not, other than for wolves or whatever, which I would advocate, I would say should be banned. Yeah, we have um, to stop killing grizzlies, predators. Yeah. Grizzlies and, and, and then bison, you know, that could be negotiated. I think it's crazy to be hunting these genetically unique bison, period. But that's something you could negotiate. Um, so I don't think there's any reason why uh, that could not accommodate Lake Denali, right? National Park and Preserve. Yes. And and Wrangell St. Elias, same thing. Um, all those national parks that date to the Arctic, most of them are National Park and Preserve, and it was the same thing. They negotiated which areas were the most important for what. And also in, in, those, in Alaska, and I'm not sure that's a great idea in the lower 48, the national parks allow 
even in a national park, you can do subsistence type stuff. I don't, I, I think that's a slippery slope and I would rather see, especially if you're a, a expanding a park is just to make areas that are important for that, make them national preserve. So then it's basically a national park with no resource extraction, except for those special uses. And then those are regulated. And I would think native tribes would be happy to have regulation if it were really democratic and actually protected the area. I would think that would be seen as a good thing rather than right now. What kind of regulation is there? You got cows, you got trophy hunters, you got ATVs, you got, you know, mining is always a threat. You got potential development on, in a lot of areas. You got roads everywhere. You got people driving all over. I don't see that as a great scenario. So I think you could, you know, you, you'd have an option to do a much better, uh, you know, much better way to address everybody's concerns other than the people who are, you know, trashing the place. Um, it, it, with the national park and preserve than the current situation, which is just a hodgepodge. It's just a mess of whatever. Okay. Well, this is good stuff. We're about an hour and 20 minutes. So I hope people are still <laughs> listening. Um, but this, <laughs> no, this is, this is not the longest, uh, I've gone here. I don't, um, I don't cut for time. I just cut for conversation, but <laughs> I, I think we've, um, I think we've talked about a lot of good stuff here, Michael. Do you do you have anything else that you absolutely have to get in there? Uh, no, I don't think so. I I just think that the the, the last thing to me is um, we've been avoiding the really difficult questions on on uh, climate and biodiversity and public health and sanity and so forth for a long time. And it's time to 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 answer these questions with real solutions. We really have to, you know, it's time. We can't just keep sloughing this stuff up and go, oh, well, things are con- controversial or, oh, it's difficult or, you know, it's going to be hard to get the congressional delegation to do this or that. that. That time is over. We need to have real solutions. And I don't have all the answers, but I think we need the kinds of things I'm talking about in terms of, specific, real, live, on-the-ground things that really would do what's needed to, to protect the planet. And, and it's, there's no excuse to just keep avoiding this. And yeah. so if people have better, a better solution than I do on these, great, that's great. I'd love to hear it and more power to them. But it's just, it's not acceptable to just say, oh, well, that's too controversial and radical, so it can't happen. And so, and I guess we'll do nothing. Yeah, that's, maybe. That's uh, where we got where we are. <laughs> well, maybe maybe the uh, Wilderness Society will, will, will realize soon that this is the way to go, and then they can take all the credit for everything, and that would be great. If they, if they did the job and took the credit, that's fine with me. I, I don't, I'm not doing this to get the credit. I want to get the job done. And I hope we do. Yeah, so let's uh, let's all... wake up the big greens, guys. Come on, let's rally. Quit the uh, <laughs> quit the industry crap and let's get to work. We've got a lot of work to well, do. It's not too late, but we got to get going. Okay, Michael. Thanks for your time. And if people want to find Restore, how can they find that online? Uh, well, we have a website: www.restore.org. 
We also have a um, New National Parks Twitter feed, which we, we send out stuff on New National Parks. We have a website, or I, I mean a, a Facebook page, or Restore Facebook page, as well as a New National Parks. It's twitter.com slash New National Park. They, they, you run out of letters after, so we couldn't do National Parks. But Okay, so at National yeah. Park, yeah. Or at New National at Park. New, at New National Park, yes. Okay. Oh, well, thanks for listening to me. Thank you. Oh, well, thanks. Okay. Thanks for listening to this episode of Wilderness Podcast. You can find us online at wildernesspodcast.com. Don't forget to subscribe through your podcasting app. If you'd like to support this podcast, please visit wildernesspodcast.com backslash support. Thanks for listening.